I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com And with a quick turn, skipper Alex Dock slams it in. Here's Lindergaard making Forrest backpedal. Davis looking to help it into the path of Morris. He's found him via the deflection. It's Aaron Davis. He could win it. He probably has won it for Yeovil. Oh, and it's an opening goal. What a start. Madden, after just six minutes, gives Yeovil the lead. Stansfield, good turn away from Trott. Goal. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Glover's Pastor. We are welcoming a record-setting defender to the podcast today. He played over 300 matches in green and white, made the jump to the Football League from part-time football in 2008 and quickly found himself a regular in the Glover's department. Department. He did depart for Chesterfield, but later returned following Oval's relegation from the championship. Uh, some say he's still got Alexis Sanchez stuffed in his back pocket somewhere. We'll ask him about that challenge and so much more. Welcome to the Glovers cast, Nathan Smith. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, lads. And I must say that was a brilliant intro. <laughs> I like the tone of voice. Uh, yeah, I love that. That's brilliant. I like that. I like that. <laughs> a good start. We started off on the right foot here. We have indeed. Yeah, that's a cracking way to start. Um, let's let's start by going right back to the start. 2008, Potter's Bar. Nathan Smith, a young Nathan Smith. You're working in IT. You're a computer analyst, according to Wikipedia. How on earth did a trial at Yeovil Town come about? Um, you know what? It's so interesting that it's always become something that I always get proud of at the same time. And, you know, it was obviously playing for Potter's Bar at the time for Steve Brown. But the interesting thing was that I actually wasn't playing. 
at that time there. When I was first there, he wasn't playing me. And then, funny enough, was involved in a car crash, um, got some glass, split on the side of my head and everything. Um, I was fine. And then following Saturday, Steve Brown started to play me. And then from there on, I'd done well. And then he said, you know what? Let's um, try and get a few of you boys a trial at the Glovers. Wow. So that's that's Stephen Brown, who used to play for Yeovil himself, but obviously his son went on to play for Yeovil as well. Reese, did he did he have Yeovil as a bit of a connection anyway? Is that why it was Yeovil rather than any of the other clubs closer to London? Um, do you know what? I actually don't really know. I just know I just know Reese turned up and I'm like, damn, this is Brownie's young son, and now I'm I'm playing alongside of him. <laughs> There was um there was four of you on the trial. I seem to I'm, I'm re- been reading about it on BBC Sports and some old articles. There was four of you that, that went from Potters Bar to Yeovil on trial, but of course you were the only one that that made the jump. What whatever happened to the other three lads? Definitely a man that's done your homework, ain't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, I remember it was back and forth for about five weeks, if I can remember, and each week someone got let go. You know, um, obviously a few boys from Potter's Bar. So, um, yeah, well, each week someone got let go and I was, what was it? Royal Rumble, last man standing. <laughs> <laughs> Threw everyone else out of the top rope at the back of the stand, did you? Is that what it was? Yeah, mate, just stay the last one. Yeah, the people in the elbow. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it was in March, you signed your professional contract with Yeovil after the the trial, what was it like moving from part-time football to League One? Like, it didn't seem like you found it difficult to adapt on the pitch, but, you know, behind the scenes, was it a, a real step change for you? Um, I think the hardest initial thing, which was adapting from using a spoon to knife and fork. And the reason why I say that is because I would always eat with a spoon. And my grand said to me, when you get into these professional environments, you must be able to use knife and fork. So I tried to use knife and fork in that first game against um, Hartlepool and I just gave it up. But from then, it became a bit of a, a learning curve, I'm going to be honest. Um, it, initially, like the, the transition was it, was, it was like learning how to play football again, because for me, I hadn't been taught anything growing up. It was more just play and just get on with it kind of vibe. So... It was now going from that part-time aspect. The full-time thing wasn't so bad because I'd play football every day. It was like anywhere I had an opportunity to play football, it could be at the local sports centre, it would have been at training at Potter's Bar. So it was like, in essence, I was actually like a full-time player at the time. Um, so that kind of full-time aspect wasn't difficult. It was more getting the understanding and knowing when to pass the ball certain times because, like I said, I was a person who just got the ball and I will just run with it. You know, and but obviously in this game, sometimes, you know, they advise you not to run with the ball away from, you know, from left back trying to take everyone on. So it was, again, relearning and what should I say, learning that bit of aspect, which was the challenging part. It's interesting, actually, because at that time, the club was in a very strange position. Obviously, the season before, we lost at Wembley. We didn't make the championship. A couple of players had been and gone. But Russell Sledd was still trying to keep the core together and keep the group together. What what was it that Russell said to you and how did he sell the club to you when, when you were sort of on trial and, and, and negotiating your contract? 
I'll be honest, he didn't really have to say much to sell it to me, bruv. You know, I mean, I'm going for a non-league, bruv. <laughs> Open the door, I'm in, you know, one of them ones. Um, it was interesting because initially I went to Dagenham and Redbridge first. And um, I remember after a week or two, I think I spoke to the gaffer and I just said to him, where do you see me in your, in your team? And I just remember him saying at this moment, you know, third choice, um, left back. And, but he wanted me to sign a... Um, what was it called again? Um, it wasn't a contract, but it was basically like some forms, basically I could still play for them and then represent Potter's Bar. And it was like, even though that had an appeal, I don't know, in my heart, it was like something just didn't sit right with me, with someone saying that, because for me, it just felt like once you sign something, you're attached to a club. Do you know what I mean? So, um, I just went like, obviously, when the situation came up with, um, with Russell and obviously I think Nathan Jones had got injured, Russell Slade just gave me a call and he was just saying, listen, we, we, we want you to sign, you know. Um, you know, Nathan Jones is, you know, damaged his arm and there's a space here that, you know, we, you know, if, you, if you're up for it, you know, it's there. And to be honest, that's all I needed to hear, you know, an opportunity, someone telling you that there's a, an opportunity there rather than telling you your third choice and, you know, sign some piece of paper. You know, that was a, a welcome invitation. And I got on with everybody every time that I was there, you know, all the trial games that I had, you know, being in and around the first team players, everybody was welcoming. So when Russell said that, it was just, it was a no-brainer for me. And your first full season, Russell Slade gets a sack and Terry Skiverton takes over. What, what was it like going working with Terry from him being your teammate? to suddenly being the manager with Nathan Jones as his assistant? Um, it was a bit difficult at times because you get so used to calling somebody, you know, Skivo, Tell, and then all of a sudden now you want to be called Gaffer and all these things. And then obviously, as a manager, you've got to try and, you know, sometimes differentiate, you know, knowing that, all right, cool, I am the management now and I'm not, that kind of person where you can just mess around with anymore. So it was, you know, a bit of a difficult one adjusting towards that element there, but it did become enjoyable because Skivo, he had a lot of ideas and Nathan Jones just had loads of enthusiasm. So yeah, it was a bit rough at moments still, you know, but I actually enjoyed it because the, the mixture and the enthusiasm from, um, from Nathan Jones and then Skivo always throwing out different ideas and always being able to learn from him as a defender. It was it was it was exciting at the same time. Could you tell at that point that Nathan Jones was going to go on to be a, a manager and you know go on to big things? You say what it was he was going to be involved in, but you just knew he'd have some part in something because he's always had a drive. Like he's just his enthusiasm just never just nonstop. Like it'd be in training, it'd be the running, he'd always be first or second in running, regardless. Like. And yeah, he may love a little banter and joke around, but you see, when it was time to work, like there was no question in Nathan Jones. Like he always put it in, you know, I mean, regardless. So it doesn't surprise me seeing seeing him where he is now. We um we spoke to a lot of of, of players recently at a at a Legends game to to celebrate the the team that won the uh to that won the conference back in two thousand and two. Of course, Terry Skiverton was still playing when you were there. What was it like having someone that was so ingrained in the history of the football club, not just playing with you, but physically next to you on the pitch, helping you and guiding you through? Do you know, in all fairness, at the time, I didn't know nothing about the history in that sense. There, like, yeah, you know, right, yeah, he's a legend and whatever. But for me, it was you know, 
just playing the game. You know, I've got my opportunity as a, as a professional. I'm enjoying it. I've always been told to listen to your elders. So having that aspect inside of me and then able to listen to Skiba all of the time, it was, it was always a learning curve, you know, being able to learn from him and whoever played alongside him, whether it be Forbes or Peltier, it was just always, always nice to just be able to just learn, which is something I still cherish to this day from him. Nice. I like that. That's a really good answer. Um, it was a strange time because actually the, the season, your first full season, we also signed a number of other players from, from non-league circles. Uh, Gavin Tomlin, Kieran Murta, Andre McCollin, all came from Fisher Athletic over the course of, of that season. Did it feel like, because for us it felt like, well, this has worked. This Potters Barty Yeovil signing has worked an absolute treat. Did it feel like you were something of a standard setter on how to make that transition? And did you have to help the other lads that were making the same move? Um, you could say it possibly set a trend because I noticed a lot of other league teams around that time now started looking around now, um, you know, non-league players, because again, if you can find a little a little diamond in there, then you know you save a save a bit of bob as well, innit? Um, in terms of you know trying to get them to up their level again, go Gavin Tomlin's been in and around it for many years himself, anyway. And to be honest, it was everyone just trying to help each other, really. It wasn't me trying to get anyone up to a, another level because I'm still trying to get up my own level. Do you know what I mean? So uh, what we had, to be honest, was just a unity which everybody was just trying to help each other. And the training sessions were just, they were just physical. They were just, they were just battles, which is something I don't think I've ever been able to experience again in the game, which is something I do miss, you know, having the battles with the likes of Gavin Tomlin, Andre McCollin, the Lee Pertiers, the, the Forbesies, the Skibbles. It was just unique within itself. So I feel like that was able, able to make me carry me far, far, far as well, just because the 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 word plays and the the words that the, or the taunting that everyone was doing was more just to try and bring out the best of everyone. You know, so the battles were just brilliant, you know. So definitely we all learn from each other on that aspect there. I like that. In, in the summer of 2010, you were, you were linked with some championship clubs. Was there a possibility of you moving up the leagues at that point? And do you know what? what? I do remember when I spoke to Lloyd Owusu and he did say, um, he named a couple of clubs that were interested at the time. I know he did say Reading was interested in another, another someone else. I remember he called me. When I spoke, actually, I spoke to him face to face. And that was it, you know. Um, that was the most I really heard of it. And, and that was it, you know. Obviously, at that time there, when you kind of hear, interest you kind of get a bit giddy thinking you know but as you go down the line almost almost everyone's interested in players at times really it doesn't really mean anything down the line when you when you kind of get the understanding but other than that I just know Reading was the only concrete type of interest but yeah nothing ever really materialized so it was something of a no-brainer then to, to stay at Hewish Park and sign an extension no-brainer mate no -brainer. <laughs> <laughs> We've got to, we've 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 got to ask about the screamer of a goal. You played a hundred and something games in that first spell with us, and quite frankly, whenever we talk about best goals ever seen at Hewish Park, your left peg top corner always comes up. I'm not sure there are better first professional goals doing the rounds anywhere. How did that feel to score your first professional goal in that manner? Um, do you know why it was even more sweet as because and Andre McCollin can always attest to it as well because he always I remember when we when I scored it. Um the day before on a Friday, I was just doing shooting and I remember I think it was Jonesy. 
because Jonesy just kept saying to me, listen, just keep working on your striking, keep working on your striking, you know, just put the ball down, strike through, strike through, strike through. So that's all I was doing. I was literally just striking the ball the day before. So I remember I was like, Andre was out there with me and then he decided to go in. And then, so when I now scored it, it just felt nice. It just felt that kind of, you know, relief of, wow, like, you know, this bit of practice came a long way and, you know, catching it sweetly and seeing the ball fly the way it did fly. It felt sweet and it's just, you know, it's nice to be in the game and, and get off the mark. It was a heck of a goal, by the way. It was. Yeah. <laughs> it was a heck of a goal. It was, it was, a, it was a final one. <laughs> Did you score any better ones than that? Um, No, not really. Nah. That was like obviously my the biggest screamer that I've had. But obviously the others, they mean a lot to me, I think, in, in different ways. Because, yeah. of you know, I always say the time period that sometimes you score goals, situations could be happening that people don't know about. So for me, that was a screamer, but there was the one against, was it Plymouth? It might have been in the cup, which is the one that possibly means more to me than, than the rest of them. Primarily just because at that time there, no one knew at the time that my mum could have, could have was close to losing her life. That's interesting, yeah. Mm. Yeah, you never know what's, you never know what's going on when, uh players are on the pitch do you you never know so right. i think sometimes when i do show that goal um, or a few of my goals people would always look at that screamer as my favorite goal but then the plymouth one obviously i've timed it like for me it was a brilliant run like the way i've timed it and whatever but i've kind of just jumped up and it's kind of like hit my leg but the timing of it was perfect but yeah. some people it's just like okay like there's nothing good about that, you know? <laughs> and I understand it. But yeah. for me, going through everything at that time that was happening behind the scenes, you yeah. know, it makes that moment uh, a lot more special. I've just found it. It was the 31st of January 2017. Uh, we were nil nil. Nathan Smith, 62nd minute. Alex Lacey pops up a couple of minutes later and makes it two nil. Uh, Jakob Sokolik would go on and get one back, but it doesn't matter because we held them off for the win. That was uh, nice. I, I, I like that, that sometimes the games that, that we talk about, maybe the ones that we don't talk about, sorry, mean an awful lot to individual people. So to have that little story there, I think that that's quite a nice little moment. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll go back and we'll find that goal in the archives and we'll know that that means a lot to you. There you go, Governor. <laughs> one for you there, eh? <laughs> <laughs> At the end of 2011 season, you, you make a move to Chesterfield. Why why did you feel the need to move at that point? Do you know what? I actually just felt, you know, a change. You know, obviously, I've come into the game late. Um, I've got an opportunity. Chesterfield seemed like they was in a, in a position where they're trying to do things as well. And it was like, I was indecisive at the same time because, you know, you feel comfortable around what you feel comfortable around. And I was in a place where I know I was getting better. You know, so it was like the works that I was really doing with Darren Way, like every day, it's like, I didn't want to leave that. But at the same time, it was like, I don't know what else is out there at the same time, you know? So it was like, you know what, let's give it a go. You know, um, like I said, Chesterfield's like they've been in a promising place and thought we go, go, go for the risk. You had a you had a pretty successful time there though. Obviously, you did. You were part of the team that, that won League Two, but you also uh, won the EFL Trophy, Man of the Match in the final at Wembley. That's got to be something of a dream, hasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, as I always say, like you know, we grew up playing Wembley doubles, so to actually go to Wembley 
and have my cousin there with me. He was always on the street with me playing Wembley doubles or Wembley singles with my other friends and my mum there at Wembley. It just was a nice touch, you know, and like you said, you know, getting mad at a match as well in front of, I think it was about 25, 30,000 supporters. It's just a, a nice, nice touch, you know, apart from the fact that, you know, um, I had to get the, the drugs testing afterwards. So that's <laughs> and so I literally missed all of the post-game celebrations because, you know, I think I was too hydrated initially. So when you're too hydrated, you've got to retake the, um, the test and so you can't leave. And it's something, you know, and it is uncomfortable as well. Sometimes you're trying to go wee and you've got a man looking over and I'm like, <laughs> it just, everything about it can be very much delayed. So ended up missing the whole post-game celebration, but still got to see mum and, and my cousin. So, you know, that can't be taken away from me. The uh, less glamorous side of winning at Wembley, huh? Yes, the less glamorous side. <laughs> <laughs> did, did you keep an eye on your results? When you left, obviously, the time you were at Chesterfield, Gary Johnson came back, took us to the championship. But was there an element of regret that you'd moved when you saw what was happening? No, no, yeah, it was interesting that moment there, yeah, because obviously, you know, you move to a team because you, you see some form of progression and you want to progress. And then a catch between the two moment is that same season we get relegated, but then also I win at Wembley, you know. Um, so for me, it was like, well, I've never been to Wembley and I've got to Wembley and uh, I, I will win at Wembley and I become man of the match. Um, yes, you want to get promoted. But for me, it was just like, you know what? It is what it is, you know? Like, you don't want to get um, relegated. I've been relegated. What am I going to do about it? I can't sob about it. I've managed to do something well in my career. And if that is all I'm able to tell, then at least I can say to people that I've, I've won a medal and I was man of the match at, at Wembley. That's pretty special. And it also occurred to me that shortly after you left us for Chesterfield, you made your international debut for Jamaica, literally just a couple of months afterwards. How did that come about and how much of an honour was it to, to represent Jamaica on an international stage? Yeah, no, that was brilliant. That was that was a great experience, I must say. That was an experience like none other. Um, if you've ever been to Jamaica, you would know that Jamaica is just... We always say like Jamaica is not a real place because... There's so much fun and happiness that goes on in Jamaica, just in everyday life. Um, obviously, you get a lot of bad media, says things about a lot of things, but, you know, there's negative things that happen all over the world, you know, negative things happen in England and, you know, how it goes, whatever. But going to Jamaica is just fun, happiness. Everyone's always cracking jokes. So, you know, the experience of being in a player's house, which, you know, we'd always just be in a hotel down in England, but they actually had a player's house and, you know, and then you've got the chef in there cooking you, you know, loads of Caribbean food. You're getting that in the morning, lunch, um, dinner. Um, yeah, just, I said that to, that to Gavinus, everyone just trying to like, just be nice and just crack joke. And then, you know, the training aspect, you know, the heat. Yes, you know, you sometimes train the heat in England, but when over there you're training that heat, it's a different type of heat as well. So, you start learning different times that, you know, sometimes we had to go out and train just because the heat was, it was unbearable to train in that kind of weather, you know, um, but just, I think one of the best things, and I understand it more as to like when international games or, you know, like World Cups and stuff are happening, like the, how it feels sometimes to have the nation, you know, celebrate 
just from a, a game that you play and the way the nation can come together, the country can come together, it's second to none, you know, and you, it definitely shows that, you know, if teams can do well, you know, a whole country can be a lot more happier, even though obviously it might be short-lived because, you know, situations happen down the line, but just to see a unity amongst a whole group of people and a whole country, it's nice. It's nice and, and it's lovely. So, yeah, that was a, a great experience playing over there and especially in Honduras, mm. which then was completely different. You know, I feel like in Jamaica, like the way the fans celebrate, they celebrate like nutmegs and just just different types of joyful things. And they're just happy, you know. But then you go to Honduras and there's a different energy, a different feel. It was like, if you're not, if you, you can see how sometimes players can go to different countries and, you know, winter under under all the pressure because it's like a different awe in the air you know you walk there and they're banging on your coat straight away you're seeing spray paint around the stadium and spray paint on the on the zinc fences and all these things and the way the fans cheer and the noise that they make is different to how you hear English crowds make noise so I find international games like very intriguing so yeah, it's a, it was a joy, definitely, though, to represent Jamaica and still keep contact with a lot of people over there and the staff. I love that. I absolutely love that. That's the sort of thing that you just can't really, I don't know, We. I, I don't think I can ever really appreciate what it's like to go to completely the other ends of the world and just experience this entirely different culture, but represent that entirely different culture. So many of us will never, ever get that chance. So I loved. I love hearing that kind of that story. I love hearing it. Yeah, no, as I say, man, it's it's nice. Like, obviously, you don't know what to expect, but just going over there, and like I said, just to be able to play a game and the way the country just comes together with joy. And I think even at, like, halftime, you're hearing, like, artists, musicians, like, coming out and singing songs and stuff. And I'm like, where the heck am I? This is wicked. You know what I mean? Like, I'm hearing some reggae songs and dancehall songs performed by the, the artist themselves at halftime. And I'm like, it's just nothing what I would ex I would have expected. But it was just brilliant, you know, brilliant. So even when I do go back and I get a chance to go to a national team game, I'm there because you just don't know what to expect with, with the Jamaican culture, but just expect joy and, and happiness from everyone. I feel like we could, uh, could, could do with some of that at Hewish Park, a bit of... <laughs> Reggae music at halftime, get everyone going a bit. I think we could go for some of that. Come up for that, yeah. That'd be great. <laughs> great too, you know. Uh, you, you returned to Yeovil in 2014, following our relegation from the championship. What was it like coming back? Why did you make the decision to come back? And what was it like working under Gary Johnson? Gary Johnson, it was different again because I feel like you get different, you get used to different type of characters, you know. Um, it was like, I think I was more uh, understanding to it just because I got the chance to experience John Sheridan. You know, John Sheridan's character was very loud and, you know, you can say certain comments, but it was never personal with John Sheridan, you know, which is one thing I learned, you know, and I think that he was the first type of manager that I had that was, you know, very loud and shouty, shouty in that, in that kind of mode there. So Gary Johnson, it was similar, but... You know, he was a bit different when he was ready, but he, he was all right, to be honest. Obviously, he had these little moments, as some managers do, and they just want to win. And when it's not going well for them, you know, flip me using the championship, and then, you know, things go a bit left, and it can become a bit very frustrating, you know? So 
he was he was good to work under. To be honest, and yeah, yeah, Gary Johnson was alright. It was it was obviously a really difficult period for for all of us, for for players, for staff, for fans alike. Um, relegation beckoned um, into League Two. How hard was that on the, uh, on on that group who had only just, for the vast majority, only just dropped out of the championship? I know because I'm sure that was like one of the first times. I'm not a bookies man. I don't even go bookies, but I remember all the chat where they're saying, "Yeah, the bookies saying that we were one of the favourites to go back up or something like that." One of the first times. Um, but again, any relegation is is tough, regardless of if you just drop down from championship or whatever, and then you drop down again. Any relegation you go into is tough. Um, but I think the lessons that you can learn from relegations are massive. Do you know what I mean? And it's just, I never forget, it's always like, you just never want any terrorists in your camp. And it's like, because for me, it lets you even know about, even when you're running your own business, you know, the types of people that you would want and you don't want in your camp, you know, people who are ready to be victims, you know, just because the manager's out of them out and said, you know, you was at fault for that. Um, and I think it was interesting just to see the type of characters because I saw it at, you know, Chesterfield as well, that time when we got relegated, you know, you say one thing to a player, he's not happy. And then you say something else to a player as well that was that they deem as negative. And it's now like, okay, now these two now have something to talk about. They may have never spoken throughout the season, but now they've both been wronged. They now have a conversation about wrongness to talk about. And then it was like the more, unless I kind of noticed the change, like the more you would out players out as, you know, the generation cycle was changing, it was like the more that kind of victim culture kind of just gravitated more and more. And it was like the minute you had, I don't know, six, seven players just annoyed with a manager, it was very hard to kind of make a shift back to the positive side for the changing room. So, um, when, I, when you look back at it, it was always going to come, you know, don't, but don't get me wrong. Sometimes managers put that upon themselves as well. Um, because again, we're all human beings and the way sometimes managers want to talk to players, like, yes, I understand you say it's not really personal or whatever, but mate, some people take things differently to how some people take it. And I always say, you know, Society always changes. So how you could have managed players how many years ago, you just can't do that to certain players now. And I feel like it's those, I think they're the good managers who are able to understand and adapt within understanding that, listen, how I could do with someone one time, I just can't do with this kind of person this time. And yes, it takes a lot of energy to have to, you know, change your habits. But I feel that the best managers are the ones that are able to do that. How, how refreshingly honest. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, though. Like I said, like, for me, like, I'll be honest with any question you throw out there, which is why I feel like, even if, like, sometimes people ask me, oh, do you want me to send you, like, prerequisite questions or whatever? I just don't really care to hear what questions you want to ask me. Like, if you're going to ask me, just ask me, and then I'll just give my honest opinion. If I don't want to answer it, I don't answer it. You know what I mean? Because what's the point of beating around the bush when there's no bush to really beat around? You know? uh, yeah, that's a good podcast title. That one, um, <laughs> uh, Paul Sturrock replaced Gary after he left. What well, basically had to change everything, didn't he? Wholesale changes, a total squad rebuild. And at the start of that following season, we seem to have an unbelievable amount of injuries and just never really got going and, and struggled. It, 
what are you thinking at that point? You've come back, back and two seasons in a, in a row, things haven't quite worked out how you anticipated, really. Do you know what? I swear it was Sturrock. I'm sure it was him. He was the man that stopped their parents' bonuses. So things weren't really going to go well from that still. That. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it was him. He was a wife. I'm sure it was in that country and he stopped their parents' bonuses. And that's where life kind of changed over at there as well, man, because... Again, you know, players like extra bit of money where they can get money as much as they like the game. They want a bit of money where they can get it. You know, um, Stark was interesting. Very, very interesting. I used to see something that I've never seen before, which I'd be like, geez, I'm red. Like, this one is different still. <laughs> you know? Um, and to be honest, going by his situation, it was, it was a matter of time, to be honest, because he just, I just feel like the way he was managing, he was a nice person, lovely person. But I'll be honest, one time, a couple of times, he might be watching training in his, in his car and then he'll conk out, he'll fall asleep in his car, you know? So, you <laughs> <laughs> see so, those kind of things, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's, just, it's, it's, a, it's a time that something's going to happen along the way. But he was a good guy. I enjoyed him, you know? Again, it was, for me, I enjoy working on the different types of people because you get to learn different aspects about people, you know, but yeah, fair play to start up, but you know, it is what it is in the game, isn't it? It is. And and it's funny actually because it ended up being another one of your teammates that then took over once Storick had, had departed in, in Darren Way. It was someone that you've you've mentioned, I think, before on, on other podcasts or, or, or elsewhere that you used to work one on one with Darren Way quite a lot. What was it like for him then to become manager and then have the job full time? Darren Way was just relentless. His thing was different. He was in early doors. Like, he was in from all 6.30 in the morning, 7 in the morning. Like, everything had just changed. He had green lines going around the building, like, just as a reminder, we had to wear green bands as well. Like, but one thing was, I respected it. And one thing I would never, ever forget is that, for me, it's like, yes, People would say, yeah, Yeovil Town have the smallest budget in the Football League or whatever it is they want to say. But you see, when him and Skivo were doing their thing, it was just like, there's no excuses. Like, we may have the smallest budget, but we're going to feel like we've got the biggest budget. They always, they just made things work, you know? And it's always stayed with me. Like, I cannot complain because with whatever we had at Yeovil, like, Darren Way just always made something work. Skivo, they always took their time out to make something work. Like I more worked with Skivo in that time afterwards because he was obviously assistant. So a lot of defending things, me and Skivo would work on a lot more. But the teamwork from the two of them, it was just brilliant. Like Darren Way's analysis, like that's one thing I always miss. I need to link him down Plymouth and just sit down with some analysis sessions because he would tell you precisely like, He'll be like, all right, for example, this V on my top here, he will tell you, Matt Green will trouble, he will pinch the left part of the V, not the whole jumper. He will tell you precisely. And and as much as you might be thinking sometimes, all right, Gaffer, like, that's a bit too precise. He was right because something would happen in the game. Yeah, and it was like, damn. And it was just a joy to see, like, how like precise and you know hungry 
two people could be, you know. And it's for me, it's kind of upsetting that it didn't work out, work out like they didn't go up the leagues because it was next level. And I sometimes feel like I think what wasn't helpful was that the level of information or the level of understanding that they had probably was sometimes a bit much for some of the players, you know, because it was that good. Like, and I would actually come in like excited, ready to learn. Do you know what I mean? It was literally like being in school, but exciting type of school. Then you had, obviously we had gym psychologists come in at times and he was no, he wasn't a psychologist. He was Jim. He was my friend. Like he was proper. Do you know what I mean? I still talk to Jim now about a few things and whatnot. So it was just so good what they were building. It's just unfortunate that I, I feel like with what they had and what they knew, if they, you know, got a bit higher, I don't know, something else could have happened. But yeah, it was, it was great. As you can see, I get excited talking about all them learning aspects there. It was, it was just wicked. Because to be honest, when I left for yo, when I left to go to Chesterfield the first time, I think that's when Darren Way started getting more into the whole coaching aspect after the whole accident. And even then, like his analysis was good. Yeah, like it went way better afterwards. But at that time, there it was good. Yeah. So for me, I'm like, all right if this is what you get at the lowest budget club, so-called, then flip me when I go to Chesterfield, that analysis is going to be fire. It was nothing like that. Like, literally. Like, and that was Darraway just in the beginning. And when I went to Chesterfield, the analysis was nothing like that. So when I came back and Darraway, he had taken it up like 20 notches, like with his analysis. So it was, it was always exciting. Always exciting. As I said, you can see, by the way, I kind of get excited talking about the learning aspect. Awesome. It's it's yeah. it's fascinating because you know to us as supporters, you know that period of time is pretty much one of the most dismal periods. Like watching Darren's mm. team was was really difficult at times, especially that last season when we went down before and he you know gets the sack before the end of the season. So to hear you talk about the way he coached, the way he trained you in that way, it just I don't know, it just didn't translate to supporters. I mean, there'll be supporters listening to this you're thinking what <laughs> this doesn't make any sense like literally like I always say it like it was one of the most exciting periods of my of my career like the learning and the teaching from him like because obviously they would always him and Skiba would always put themselves into positions like to learn more to learn more you know I mean one time they got us a phone call with um even um we had a phone call with John Terry I still got that in my journal I remember I wrote about that just giving us some gems. Um, even Big Fergie, after we've, I think we've got the draw to play United the second time. Um, you've got Fergie on the phone as well, and we was having a little, small little combo and whatnot. Like, they really put a lot into it. Don't get me wrong, but it's like, for me, sometimes, because of the obsession from Darren Way, some players wouldn't be able to understand why he was so obsessed. And, you know, coming from where he's come from, you know, the whole accident, being told, you know, be able to run again. So to be able to be in that position, it was like, you know, I've got to give this my all. You know, um, obviously, like I said, it didn't go well. But even that last season, it started off brilliantly because I remember Jordan Green just talking to them on a regular. Um, him, Jordan, Jordan, um, Reese, and Zoko, everything started off well that, that last season. So even that call, cool, you know, sometimes football does go left. But even just to hear some of the things that, you know, the fans or whoever it was were doing, you know, outside of his house and all those things is hurtful because to know, like I said, yes, 
sometimes it, it doesn't go right. But to know from my point of view, what they were genuinely, genuinely putting in like every day, like I said, they're getting in at like seven o'clock. I remember sometimes Skibo went leaving to all five, five thirty, and Darren Way still there, you know. So there was a lot being put in, and like he would take the rap, like almost every interview. I never really watched interviews, but he'd always just take the blame all the time. And I never forget asking him one time. I said to Gaffer, I said like, "How do you sleep in it, like knowing that we've lost like some of these some of these games and whatnot?" And he would say, "You know what?" The reason why I can sleep is because I make sure I leave no stone unturned, which is why I give you lot so much information or I do all I have to do or what I can do in order to leave you lot equipped. Because if I don't, then that will leave me thinking, why did I not do this? Why did I not do that? Why did I not do this? Why did I not do that? So I make sure I cover everything as much as I can. And if it doesn't go right, cool. I can say, you know what, I've done all this, but you know what, let's try and find more or try and find another way where we can try it so yeah so it was always a learning curve which i always take with me like in the, into business to this day now and even playing at enfield town like last year there's there's just no excuses you just try and get on with it and you know if it doesn't go right you go again find another way sounds like we'd have been just fine if we'd have had 11 nathan smiths taking this all on board and being this excited <laughs> sounds like we'd still be in the football league if you ask me um i was gonna ask during that time during that second period you made a switch to center back you went across um to center back how how did you find the transition um it probably fair to say it didn't necessarily look easy at the start of your time at center back but you really adapted to it and became pretty focal in the middle of defense there how how did you find the change? Why did the change come about? You know, I think initially I was going for a little. Uh, I had an injury moment. It was weird. There was this. It was like a, a it was like a stringy part in my leg, which it was prohibiting me from being able to sprint. And so I ended up losing my place at left back, and I was just there for a little bit, and I was trying to get it resolved and whatever. And I remember, I think it was Carlisle at home. Um, I think I came on like the last. 10 minutes or so and then Gaffer did uh, like basically go centre back and it was difficult initially because you get so used to being in a certain position on the pitch that your brain just functions a certain way you know as far as your brain's concerned okay this is always my positioning I always go up down just about to here that's it but now when you go into centre back it's like the brain is now going into like a malfunction, like, hey, what's going on? You don't normally, you know? So it was just kind of adjusting to that. So that's where like the works of Skivo came in massively, you know? Um, then I just started enjoying it. You know, it was it was different. At some points, it was good. Some points it got a bit boring because you can't really take as much risks as what you can do when you're left back or you can't get involved if any goals are really being scored or whatever. So I'd realised, though, that I had opportunity to be in the box possibly maybe a bit more by, you know, if I'm centre-back, then I'm going to go up for crosses, you know. So it was then obviously kind of making sure I right, try and work as much as I can with stuff in the box. And even though that meant, like, bugging Skivo in the morning and bugging him after training, like to do more work, more work, more work in the box and just trying to get it right. And then, yeah, then eventually goals started coming. Including moving very nicely on to one in a very memorable game against Barnet. 
4-3. Now, this is one that Yeovil fans talk a lot about. Liam Walsh picks the ball up in the last minute, takes the whole squad on and then lays the ball to Harry Cornick and we grab it at the death from seemingly being completely out of the game. But I think we always forget that you scored one of the other goals as well. That was a that was a pretty crazy game to uh, to watch and I imagine to be a part of. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I remember that goal because it was like my first goal in ages, isn't it? Um, and then I think I always just said like, one thing with me, when I'm in school, when I was in school, when it comes to playing like it, or some people know it as Bulldog, no one could catch me, innit? Yeah, so... <laughs> What I started doing in my head now in the box was, all right, I'm going to play it. I'm going to play Bulldog because I know no one's going to catch me. And literally <laughs> right in that game there, Donnie's who was marking me, he's gone missing. Do you know what I mean? And by the time I scored, I think he's looking around and everyone's getting annoyed with him. So that's how I now started to have an approach towards being in the box and, you know, trying to make it a lot more fun. So... Yeah, so that goal there, it, it did start that whole manoeuvre of that comeback. And yeah, man, it was nice. You know, Walshie and everything. It was a it was a nice game, man. I love that you're a professional footballer basically playing Bulldog in the penalty box. <laughs> <laughs> we've got Royal Rumbles over the back of the stand and now we've got Bulldogs in the Barnet penalty area. It's all kicking off here. <laughs> oh, brilliant. What, what was it like to play with Liam Walsh? I... I I loved watching Liam Walsh play football. Absolutely brilliant. And I'm surprised he hasn't, you know, I'm surprised he's not on the top of the game. From the way he played with us when he was such a, you know, a young kid coming through, he was phenomenal. What was he like to, to play with? Exactly what you just said. Like, I'm upset that he's just not up there yet. Like, it was that, it was, it's so interesting because it's like, when you just look back on some of the things when you're talking about it, like, in training, like, just seeing what he would do, like the way he would walk in sessions. But when you understand the type of walking that he was doing, it was walking that because the game was always going to shift, he would always end up finding space. And he knew when to get involved in little rockers and he knew when not to. And it was just pure genius. And he loved the tear up. He wouldn't, it wouldn't be like, oh, he wouldn't get into the little, the little nitty picky because he didn't want it. It was just, no, I need the ball in an area where I could be effective. So, you know what, if that person can see me and I get that ball, then I can make something happen. But I think even in his first game against Blackpool, he was one of the shortest on the pitch and he flew in for one header. I don't know who he was against. And I said, yeah, that's when I knew he's on it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I rate this scouser. He's on it. He's <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I've always had time for him. Like, I've liked him so much. You know what I mean? Like, him, Connor's, like, Connor Roberts. Top, yeah. Top, top. Like, I've always said, like, I think I've always known what players who's come from, like, premiership clubs or up above clubs, like, who are going to make it big. Do you know what I mean? So, for me, I've been right all of the time. I'm just upset that, you know, Walshie hasn't quite grasp it up there because I don't know how he's been doing as of late, but he was just top notch. You know what I mean? Top notch, top notch. Like, like I said, the top notch. Like seeing him where he is now, there's no surprise. Like some of my bikes said, oh that no. He was every day tops. And I never forget when he saved me against Mansfield. When Darrell said be careful of Matt Green, he sometimes leads with his fingertips 
and it would draw down in the air. And the whole game, I was fine, you know. And it might have been like the 80th or the 85th minute. My man catches me in my eyes like this. Halfway line, I've gone up for the header. I'm like this. I can't see. Eyes gone. I turn around and I'm thinking, oh, gosh, who's coming alongside me? Connor Roberts. Connor comes in and clears it. And I'm like, thank you. Like, <laughs> thank you. You know, so... Yeah, man, it's, it's 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 good to see, man. It's good to see what some of them are doing, the Cornicks and them. Like, yeah, man. I'm just I'm I've, I've just found that game that you spoke of. Ryan Dixon scored a 90th minute winner. It's a good job, Connor Roberts was there. Yeah, Ryan Dixon. Even Dixon, I used to. Dixon was interesting because we we used to have this little frustration kind of relationship in the beginning, and I think because I'd always try my best to understand people. I think when I got to understand Dicko, he was such a good guy, you know? Like, but again, if you don't take the time out to understand him, you just seem like someone that just shouts and whatever. But Dicko was just a proper good geezer. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I enjoy playing alongside Dicko as well. We've got to ask about the Man United games because you were the, I think you're the only member of the squad to play in both. We obviously had two very, very um, quick back-to-back. In the first fixture, we gave them a really good game. And for a large period of time, we were better uh, than them, which was incredible. And I loved every second of it. The one I think that obviously we're going to talk to you about is that Alexi Sanchez challenge. I think I'm right in saying it was his, it was Manchester debut. Talk about welcome to Manchester Manchester United, Alexis. Um, did you think the ref was going to send you off? Be honest. I didn't, you know, because I didn't think it was that bad. But obviously, when you look back at it, it was like... <laughs> <laughs> I'm, gl- I'm glad you said it and we didn't. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> but initially, I knew what I was going to do in it. And like, I knew I was going to get the ball. But if you look at that video, last second, the ball bounced like in a funky way. So if it didn't bounce, his touch, because his body position was only going to go one way, in it? So his touch would have made him go one way. So I knew I was going to get the ball because I don't like, and I don't know, I've said it many times, I don't like paying for yellow cards. And that's why you don't really, I've only got one red card, which was a bit frustrating because I just don't want to pay for no fines. I don't want to pay, <laughs> oh, I want to pay no red card money. So I'd always make sure that yeah, you may not get it right sometimes, but more time with me, I know I'm going to get it right. But that one there, it just bounced up in a, in a weird way. And that's what made it seem like I've like I've just gone to smash him or whatever. But fair play to him. He still took a picture of me afterwards, you know? So big up Alexis. <laughs> what was it like to test yourself up against, obviously, Wayne Rooney in the first one, Radamel Falcao in that one, Angel Di Maria came off the bench in the second game, Romelu Lukaku, who I think you played against when we played Everton as well, I seem to remember. Um, these, yeah. these, these are the best players in the world. How good was it to, to test yourself against them? Do you know what frustrates me? The first one, yeah, Di Maria. Because he played in the first, we scored that one there. And um, it frustrates me because... Simon Gillett was left chasing back. And to this day, it bugs me because I know he wouldn't have bun me. Like, I know I would have been there with him one-on-one. Like, <laughs> and it upsets me to this day sometimes because it would have been nice to test myself because I know he wouldn't have got away when he got away. 
You know, obviously, Gillett isn't that type of player who stays at the back, especially on a corner situation. But, you know, we're trying to win the game, innit? Um, but, yeah, playing against the likes of, you know, De Maria was sensational. Herrera, Mata, jeez, on bread. Like, he was next level Mata. Like, just, just, he was just in flow. You know, when, like, they say that the Thai, you know, when the, the, the Chinese philosophers talk about Thai, the flow. That's what Matt was on, just flowing, just everything, just gracious, everything. Um, Falcao, it was good. Didn't really do too, too much. I just, Rooney was, Rooney was Rooney, just good. Everyone, oh, they all were good. I think the one thing that surprised me and told me a lot about the top level was that I remember I didn't hear one person speak on, in the first game until the, about the 70th, 75th, yeah, about the 70th minute. And that was Rooney when he got frustrated with Falcao and said, I thought he was going to go over there. And I really said, wow, like no one has spoken the whole time. And that just shows how well drilled you have to be as a team, you know, because when you're playing in front of like 30,000, you just about, well, 10,000, you just about can hear anything. So these lot are playing against, you know, playing in front of crowds of 30,000 plus, 40,000 plus weekly. So your level of attention has to be so far up there and it made me just again have another appreciation for top level athletes you know because these are some small details which people won't really look at and understand as to how massive that they are in the game because some people need players to be talking to them 24 7 but at them higher levels as i said there's so much noise going on that it's sometimes close to near impossible to hear everyone you know so it just showed me again how top class these level of athletes have to be in order to be in this place where they are you know your Rashfords and you know your Lingards and whatnot the Rashford was interesting because I, I was annoying him in that second game I just kept pushing him in his back and he got frustrated on a few occasions but for me I'm like, I ain't letting you have no run on me. Like, that's no chance because I know he's quick, quick, you know? And once he puts on the buns and burners, he may be off. So you know what? I'm going to get on your nerves. I'm not going to be on no fair, fair thing. So I just kept pushing him in his back, guiding, pushing him. And I remember the Lionel saw and he told the ref. And I'm like, damn, these are definitely top level Lionel. <laughs> I get away with this all the time, you know? Um, but yeah, like it was, it was a joy again. Lukaku, for me, it's interesting the way it's gone for him. But he was definitely one of the best strikers that I've played against. Like that Everton game, it was unbelievable. Like, because you know, most strikers, if the ball comes up to the front man, you know, he's back to play, he'll control it, and you know, he play it backwards. But Lukaku had this essence about him where the ball will be coming and he would like pin you but side on and control it on his chest and flick it into his direction. So it's all one movement and it happens so quick. And for me, it's like, when you're not used to playing against that, because like I said, the majority of strikers, you know, they control it here, play it backwards or whatever, or your back's to play. So when you're now playing against that top level, who's someone who's strong, agile, and can control it sideways and bring it into his path and continue, it was just, again, next level, you know, next level footballing. So the experience was was good. Another great experience. That was, I think, against 35 or in front of 35 fans at um, Goodison Park. And yeah, man, like the fine details to get to the top level, 
it's not no joke. You know, like you have to appreciate it. And I think even like when you appreciate that, you then start appreciating everybody at top level in whatever field it is that they're in. You know I mean? It could be a man in a, working an office job that he's at top level in his office. Like, you know, he's got to have some fine detail margins, a golfer, a tennis player, a swimmer, like a diet. It's got to be, you know, just top level, everything about them. So, yeah. Talking about that first Man United game and you talking about players who you played with, who you knew were going to go to the top. There's a particular player who massively splits opinion amongst Yeovil Town supporters, who missed a sitter against Manchester United oh, and has just got, prom- just got promoted to the Premier League with Bournemouth and is now going to the World Cup with Wales. Did you think Kiefer Moore would be that striker when you were playing with him? Do you know what? I'm not going to lie. I didn't think he'll be that striker, but Kiefer had the action. So it doesn't like surprise me. But because of what was happening at the time, like it didn't seem like, you know, that would have been the story. Like he's always had the big frame. He always can bring it down nicely and he could hit one when he's ready. Do you know what I mean? Like he can win headers, like you'll get good headers and stuff like that. So he always had the attributes. So I feel like his journey is just wicked, you know? I swear he went, he got Iceland or Norway or something. Norway, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, like, you just think that's it. You know what I mean? A man's got Norway, that's it, he's gone. And all of a sudden, he's come back. I remember that Wigan, because uh, one of my good friends, Sam Moores, he was over there and, you know, he was having two, two chit chat. Then obviously, Kiefer just turned it on out of nowhere. Bam. And fair play to him, you know what I mean? But again, it just shows, isn't it? Like, football's a game of world opinions because, you know, you know, Gary Johnson and the man weren't having him. <laughs> but look now, isn't it? So, <laughs> he just got, and I feel like his story should be one to inspire people 100%. Because, like I said, like you went to Norway, as far as people are concerned, when you go to Norway, that's it. It's a wrap. Like, if you're in England and you go to Norway, you ain't coming back to England because no one ain't really going to want you. But he's gone there, he's come back, doing his thing for Wales. He's all alongside big man Bell, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's not no joke thing that he's on. So, it's massive respect for Kiefer. Like I said, he always had the attributes. It's just, I guess, being around the right type of staff management has helped him. And well, not even just the staff manager, but himself and foremost, because if he doesn't put his mindset in a certain place, he don't get there. And then I guess the right type of staff to help, you know, nurture and just keep continue to build him up. Look where he is now, isn't it? So that's definitely a story that should be used to, to inspire people. If you're listening, Kiefer, you're more than welcome to come and Talk, tell that story on the podcast. Um, let's let's bring it back to you a little bit because at the end of that season, um, we survived by the skin of our teeth. And unfortunately, your contract wasn't renewed. Was that a mutual thing? Were you just not offered anything? Was the time right for you to move on? No, I weren't offered nothing, you know. So um, it was an interesting one um, because obviously I was close to Darren Way and, and, and Skibble. And it was like, the way it went about, I weren't really too happy because I was like thinking, you know, the lads could have just said to me straight, you know what I mean? Because the game is the game, in it? So the way it went about, I weren't too fond of the way it happened. But, you know, it's the game of football, things happen, you know, we eventually chat down the line and, you know, we get on. Um, still hit up Darren Wave, you know, and then still drop Skibo a message just because it's just moments that happen, in it? And I guess it's moments where everyone's learning within that situation. 
you know what I mean? And like I said, like the situation didn't change the amount of respect that I had for them and still have for them, you know? Obviously wanted to stay, but if people choose to move on, they choose to move on. You left Yeovil with just shy of 300 EFL appearances, but with a cup appearance, you've gone well over 300 and that's a record that's going to stand for a long time now. Um, how proud are you to be in the same category as Skivo, Nathan Jones, Luke Aylin, Terrell Forbes as, as such stalwarts of Yeovil Town history? Do you know what? It's nice. I don't really think about it sometimes, but when you mention it, I feel like sometimes there's different things that I should look back on and, you know, appreciate a lot more just because, you know, I started the game late, 21. Um, and there's many people I always say technically and all these things that were well better than me that I met along the way. But when it comes to, you know, drive and determination, they didn't have that, what I had, which has allowed me to stay in the game longer than what they have, you know? So, um, you know, I think it was 296. I remember getting a shirt made for it as well. One of the 300, but didn't happen. But yeah, like it's nice, you know, again, to be alongside a man like Skivo, who's Mr. Yeovil. And, you know, if, even for Skivo, just looking at me and saying, you know what, like if there's anyone that I would like to have this at the same time, is definitely new, you know, because I've always shown him appreciation. I've always said it all to a date to, to a today, you know. Um, so it's nice to be again alongside somebody like Skivo and the Forbesies and whoever. And I'm sure they said that I've got the most is it in the in the football league and in the most football league appearances. Yeah. So again, that was something nice to have because again, like I said, for me, I was just playing football on the streets. As I say, I was grew up on the street football academy, and that was it. You know, age 20, not really feeling like that's going to happen because I remember around when I was 16. It was around that time when life kind of changed along the speech of when Rooney kind of came onto the scene for Everton. It was like, yeah, if you ain't 16 and in the academy now, like you ain't going to get a chance. So that be, kind of became the rhetoric around that time. And also one of my friends was on trial at Fulham and the guy that got him the trial, who was our coach at the time when I was at Enfield, I remember him turning around and saying, oh, if he doesn't make it as a professional, none of you have a chance. You know, and funny enough, I actually agreed because I looked at it as like my friend was sensational. You know, like the way he controlled the ball, everything about him was was top level. You know, but he ended up not making it as a professional, but I did. And then when you kind of be when you're in the game, you kind of learn. Hold on, like he's a striker, I'm a defender. You know, like that's two different positions. So a manager shouldn't really be turning around and can't turn around and saying if he don't make it then none of you lot are making it because that's number one yeah this striker kind of are you make and say that if you wanted to but if two different aspects two different positions it really made no sense so again it became another learning curve for me so when I look at the whole 296 appearances on a whole yeah it's definitely something that I'm massively proud of you know massively proud of I was wondering if I could ask you a little bit about um, a couple of things sort of away from football, because one of the things that you did a bit of national media for whilst you're at Yeovil was your, um, your pre-season trip to India. Everyone else was off in Magaluf and Ibiza partying the nights away throughout the summer. And you decided to go to India for a meditation silent retreat. What was that experience like? What did you gain out of it? And, and why did you decide to do it? Do you know what? I think I reached a stage in my life where I was just saying, I want to learn more about myself. 
I don't know why I asked that. I don't know why I kept saying that as well. And one thing I've come to learn over time, the more you have a question, the more like the answers start coming to you or the opportunities for your answer to be revealed. And I remember my friend suggested um, the 10 day silent retreat and landmark forums, which is a free day, like nine o'clock in the morning till 10 a.m. Um, seminar. Just about like creating a new life for yourself. So I said, you know what? Don't ask me no, I'm not asking any more questions because she was a person who I've got a lot of respect for. So for me, it's like, if you've done it and it worked for you, cool, no worries. She hadn't done the silent retreat. She'd done the landmark thing, but I said, you know, I'm going to do them both. Um, and then, yeah, so when I went there, it was just the first time I think I've been away by myself. And I think when I realised this was really something different was when I got on the plane and I saw a lot of um, Asians. And for me, I'd normally get in on planes and I'm seeing, you know, different types of cultures all on the one plane. So it was like, okay, like, I think I'm going to India, you know? Um, then I get to India and I'm like, all right, I'm at India. So end up getting there. And throughout the time, it was definitely like the 10 best days that I've had of my life. Um, I say it because I've always, the reason why I wanted to go as well, because I've always wanted to understand like what suffering was, because I would always question like, why is it that, you know, someone can go through a situation the same as somebody else, but the other person, one person takes it in a bad way and the other person just brushes it off. I'd always question why is it someone can disrespect someone, tell someone to F off or something, and one person's like, all right, cool, whatever. The other person takes it to heart. You know, so I always had all these questions as to as to why. So going there, I was able to understand that, you know, within the space that we're in, you know, the word attachment, we we place a lot of attachment upon things in our life. So some of us may face a level of attachment upon our TV. Oh, the TV's there to me. I need this TV in my life. And someone like me, I don't really care about the TV. So when someone broke into my garage one time and took two TVs, others were more frustrated about the TV than me. <laughs> I was just happy they didn't take my juicer. <laughs> you know what I mean? So again, I learned that we grow up kind of placing a level of um, importance on certain things. And what we learned through the aspects of meditation. So it was a 10 day silent retreat, no reading, no writing, no talking, no eye contact, 15 plus hours of uh, meditation. We had to sleep on the metal bed, um we had to there was no toilet toilet um toilet roll we had to use this the spray that they use to spray when you go to the toilet um three meals a day as i said 15 plus hours of meditation i had to walk there enough like two minutes and a half just to get water um I had to wash our own clothes as well and it was just interesting just going back to basics you know no phone not looking at anything and what you start to learn is that you know, this mind that we call our own, there's always loads of thoughts that are going off, you know, and when you're able to sit with these thoughts and give them no meaning, you're able to then detach yourself from a lot of issues that you may, or attachments that you have towards things. So say, for example, mm -hmm. I, I, I have an issue with my mom, you know, and I dislike my mom. Um, because she's wronged me over the years. Well, I feel like she's wronged me over the years. Now, when I'm sitting in a form of meditation, 
all these issues or, or things that I have always come up to surface. And they obviously, you might feel a certain way, you might get angry because you think of something or your mind might be thinking of all these things. And what you're meant to do within those moments are do nothing. So as if it's like as if you were seeing a, a fly and you just become the observer. The fly is just going around, you know what I mean? And you're just observing it. You're not giving it no meaning. You're just looking at the fly for the fly for what it is. And so when these feelings come up during the meditation and you give it no meaning, you just become the observer, no matter, even if you feel like a pleasant feel or a negative feel, you just observe the sensation and you give it nothing, no meaning. And then what starts to happen is the connection towards it begins to break away. So what it's like is, for example, imagine you've got one thread and it's a thread of frustration and you keep being frustrated, keep being frustrated and every frustration is a thread. And before you know it, you're gonna have a rope, you know? So the minute now you don't give any meaning to anything, any situation or anything towards anyone, then the rope begins to unwind. And then before you know it, yes, could notice that something's there but you're now not attached and then you end up not reacting to things to how you reacted before so it became one of that that the best experience that i've had you know the first three days was difficult um because the most i've meditated for was 10 minutes and that was even a, a, a task so to now have to sit for like a minute sorry an hour or two hours and not even talk or ask questions was very difficult um but after the third day, the third day was probably the biggest day for me because the first two days, I remember there was um, an American guy and an Irish guy and they were talking and it was like, they were trying to get me to talk. And I was thinking, nope, I'm not gonna do this, no chance. I need to have a genuine experience, even the toilet roll. I didn't know they only used a spray gun. So me, I'm thinking, all right, let me just pack what I need to pack. So I've bought a sleeping bag with me. I've bought everything. I bought toilet paper. And then this is in the beginning. And the guy said, oh, um, this is before when we were allowed to talk before it started. He said, oh, they don't use toilet paper. They only use a spray gun. And I'm sitting there like this. No, I can't do this. I can't do this. But then I said, I don't want to come back with a false experience. So you know what, let me learn how to use this spray gun. And then what do I learn? It's actually way more cleanlier, cleanlier than using toilet roll, you know? Um, but then the essence of this everything, just learning about myself, understanding the essence of being in connection with when they speak about vibration, because when you look at the core atom of a, the core of an atom, everything that exists is vibration. So when you understand vibration, you understand that nothing straight, it goes up and down, up and down. So therefore, in life, you're going to have up moments, you're going to have down moments. You know, there's always two ways to life. There's, you know, they call it law of polarity. There's left, there's right, there's up, there's down. You either know or you don't know. And when you don't know, that's even good as well. Because when you can be a grown up and say, you know, I don't know something, then at least now you know you don't know. And now you're able to put yourself in a position to know. So it just allowed me to kind of be a bit more at one with myself, understand people a lot better. So then frustrations that I may have had with people, they just went because it was like, I understand about human patterns, you know, why people do things, you know, understand the limbic brain, how it's very emotional. And if you don't understand the limbic brain, it can be like a wild horse with your emotions. And when people say, follow your emotions, it's like, okay, but 
sometimes we can be in a situation like I look at myself once upon a time in a relationship where it wasn't serving me, it wasn't good for me, but my emotions was still pulling me towards the person. And, but logically, if I use my frontal lobe because that's my, my reasoning factor, that's clearly telling me it's not a right place to be. But if I'm following my emotions, then I'm gonna put myself in more of a harmful space because I'm gonna stress myself out a whole lot more. And then, you know, I've got football to play, then I've got this situation to deal with. And then, as I said, things then go on that don't serve you. So throughout that, I was able to then, you know, start my own company and, you know, help people a lot more with their own mindset, the way they see things, not trying to be a life coach, but it was more of helping people understand, you know, to stop the suffering, to stop, you know, asking people for this and being upset because they don't get this and whatnot. So yeah, definitely like the best 10 days of my life. I do want to go back. I do want to go for a month. So hopefully we can do that soon. A month? Yeah. Crikey. Do you know what it was? It's because of the experience that I gained. So I, that was around, I think 2016. And I think, it was a few months before that, that was the last time I drank because I wanted to have a pure experience of going over there. You know, I wanted to fully get everything that I can get out of it. And, you know, coming out of it, like I said, I've never smoked, no nothing. So coming out of it and then gaining the experience that I gained of like feeling like the vibrational aspect of like the left side of my brain and my right side of my brain. And like, like someone right side could knock and it'd be knocking, knocking, knocking. But what I eventually found out and realized was that whenever there was danger, the right side of my brain would start to knock. And how I realized this was um, on one occasion, I went to um, step in the road and something told me not to. And my head was knocking more and more as I was gonna step, but I decided not to. And a bike, a man on a bike just literally rode right past me. Um, then it's like your senses are heightened because I went to go to the toilet and then I'm still like 15 meters away from the toilet, nowhere even near it. And then my, my nose will start like tingling. I'm like, what the heck is going on? And all of a sudden, like another five meter step, I get the strongest smell hit my nose. And I'm like, whoa, like all my senses have now heightened just through, you know, just being silent and not really, you know, talking. And then where the real understanding came was, um, I remember I got to the hotel and I went to listen to an interview. There was no swearing or anything in it, but it was by a musician who still puts out, you know, like gun songs or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And the right side of my head was still knocking. It's not like a hurtful knock, but it's like a knock, like it's alerting you. And then it was only when I decided to put on some reggae music from an artist called Chronics, who just only sings about stuff to do upliftment, is when the right side began to slow down the knocking and then the left side was like a pleasant tingling type of sensation. So it let me understand that there's more to life than we truly are even aware of. Do you know what I mean? And when you do take that time out just to relax, then you're able to find out and understand more about yourself. So when my grand used to say, um, silence is a great revelation, now I understand because when we're sight, we're so busy in a world being told we need to do this to better your life or do this to you know release the stress and do that. When you kind of learn that the essence is actually doing nothing because when you look at it, when we trackle it back, I'll say, all right, well, English language, relatively new. If you're looking at the grand scheme of the world, um, all languages are, are relatively new. Once upon a time, we was 
flipping humming and making noises with our with our mouths or it was telepathy was the form of communication so then you learn well that was coming from the art of in a sense nothing so a lot of things that are being put to us has kept us away from that true inner understanding and when i work with people the results that they gain in a short space of time compared to when they're seeing other people and doing this doing that doing that it's just so phenomenal do you know what i mean and it's, it's just a joy to see and that for me it's like because i noticed that a lot of people will see a lot of people um not to say like certain psychiatrists they may go and see or whatever and i'll always question again like why is it that someone can go and see a psychologist or whatever it is psychiatrist and before you know it they they're there but they're there for like two three four five years or they're there for a very very long time and it's like when you kind of start understanding some of the questions some asks it's like replacing one problem for another problem you know so when you understand the aspect of the deep inner work of you know the meditation and the healing then you kind of see all right cool like you have to work from a not only a, a physical level but from a spiritual space of being as well and then it's through that you then get a, a deeper understanding of of life and all the the treasures that come with it is that is that part of the reason why i've seen you on social media do um water fasts where you just have water for, for 24 48 and you can go days and days and days just consuming water at a time is that the same theory just strip everything back to its absolute basics you know what because again so like that's it's, it's simply that again so when you strip everything back to its absolute basis if you look at it, the body's always healing and if you look at from ancient civilizations till now they've always said that the downgrade of our health has always been from external focus, never internal. So whatever we're placing from external, internally will bring our health either down or up. And when you learn that, all right, the body's always healing itself. So why is it some people, we've been told that if you don't eat, you will die. But then you're doing your homework and it's like many people fast and they live healthy or they, or their, their health comes back to a different aspect, you know? So for me, I've always been a person, I'm not just going to read a book and then just say, oh, this is good for you. And that's good for you. I just find that rubbish because so many people do that. They read something. It sounds good. They'll stand up in a set of people and they'll be like, yeah, so blueberries, blueberries contain 5,000 antioxidants and it's good for you, but they don't really live it, you know? So for me, it's like, I need to experience this in order to really talk about something and say whether it is beneficial or not, you know? So when you water fast and you start understanding the benefits of it, it's that, all right, cool. The body's always healing itself. And what slows down the healing is what you're placing inside of it. So you're either going to place foods, which are whole foods, you know, fruits, vegetables, nuts, grains, um, that are going to aid to its, um, its building, or you're going to place artificial foods. So like, you know, your, um, your, your donuts, your sweets, your white flowers, you know, your crisps, your cereals, all of these things contribute to a downgrade in your health. So when you're just drinking water, after three days, the body starts to promote stem cells. So stem cells are any cells in the body that can replicate, that will increase your healing. So the longer you abstain from solid foods, because before it was, it was called abstaining, whereas what then started to happen was they started talking about our oh, starvation it's nothing to do with starvation you know it's just abstaining from food solid foods from a period of um, a period of time so when now you're abstaining the body only has itself to heal with so things like not just like 
ailments. It'd be things like frustration, anger, stress. They don't serve in the body anymore. So the body says, you know what? We don't need anything in this body that's going to bring it, bring it down. So any ailments that need healing. So it could be like, you know, chest issues that need healing. The body's going to heal them. So anger and stress and all these things are ailments that aren't needed. So the body gets rid. The ego, the ego begins to drop as well because it doesn't serve the body. It then just wastes energy in the body. So when you start doing a water fast, you start learning more about your mind because when you're able to do just 24 hours, it's like you feel like a serious accomplishment within yourself because it's like, hold on, I feel good here. And I feel very energized. My body feels good, you know, and I didn't eat anything. This is, you know, and then so for me, what it allows for people to see how strong and powerful that they truly are, you know. So when you then encompass it all in with a healthier lifestyle, you're able to see and understand yourself more in that aspect of why do I put, why should I put degrading things into my body when my body truly is a, a temple? We've done 170 odd of these Glovers casts, and that might genuinely have been the most fascinating 15 minutes we've ever had on the podcast. So thank you very much for sharing that little story there. Um, we are going to bring it back to football um, because obviously you're still playing. You were at Enfield last season, scored a few goals, mm-hmm. saw that, sponsored by the wrestling. I think that's maybe where some of these wrestling of uh, these wrestling uh, quotes have come from. I saw that you were at WWE NXT UK, weren't you? Had the sponsorship. Um what's what's next are you staying at Enfield next season um I, I've seen you come back to Yeovil and do talks to, to schools you, you've talked about having a company uh set up what's what, what does the future hold for Nathan Smith well like you've got an invisible fishing rod there well it, there's nothing invisible about it Nathan <laughs> it is there's no rumors on Twitter there's yeah nothing don't worry about it I, I'm just putting this it goes out, there. out in July as well so if things are going to happen in the next few days that might <laughs> well listen as I say like you never know in it. Um, in terms of footballing wise, you never know what could happen. You know, I've been having conversations with some people. You know, some may know who, some may not know who. So we can only just wait and see. You know, um, in terms of you know, subject to that business wise, obviously I started a company, Vegan Food and Vibes, which was just about raising awareness to healthier foods with fun and togetherness. You know, so I've been speaking about, you know, just health, you know, mindset, you know, foods that we can eat and put together a health program as well to help people, whether it be losing weight or just generally understanding self, you know, like developing a self-love upon themselves um, creating health products as well. Um, uh, tooth powder, which has been helpful towards contributing to get rid of gum disease and tooth aches. Um, also created a drink called Blendy, which is, the main focus at the minute, which um, I've been selling on drinkblendy.com, which is just a, a health drink that is taking care of dehydration, chronic fatigue, chronic ailments. You know, latest testimonial has been um, someone who had kidney stones. So they had two kidney stones going back and forth to the hospital for the last, for 10 weeks. Um, and the hospital said um, after the two CT scans that they're going to have to chop them out chop out the two stones. So the guy bought five, no, he bought eight um, blendies. He drank one a day. And on the fifth day, he weed out two of the kidney stones. So the drink itself has just been doing wonders. I always wanted to make a health drink because understanding that energy drinks are just used as a way to market and they're just artificial sweeteners that are causing people health issues. 
you know, whether it be diabetes, whether it be raising up their blood sugar levels and, you know, young children drinking these drinks, going to school, and they don't know why they can't calm down when their teachers are telling them, you know. Um, it's helping everyone with their everyday um, health, um, stopping them craving coffee and stuff like that. Um, key ingredient inside of that has been um, got a machine that filters hydrogen water. So that basically is like a, a high level water that goes inside of your cells quicker than regular water and hydrates you and just gives your body quick life. So it's rapid hydration. And yeah, so that's what we'll be doing on the outside of, of football as well. Is that what's going to be in the bottles at Hewish Park next season? Well, we don't know, you know. <laughs> yeah, we don't know. We'll have to get some blendies down there as well to touch the pitch and all of that, you know. You're the, the most hydrated team in the National League. There we go. <laughs> well, it's needed. As we say, you know, it's helped um, players, you know, come back from injuries a lot more quickly. So, as I said, when you understand the true aspect of how important hydration is, you know, even people who, again, some people drink, and when you drink, your body becomes severely dehydrated, leaving you open to a lot of health issues. Um, I never like really mentioning it, but it's a thing where I always say people drink anyway. So it's a thing where like the blendy helps people rehydrate quicker the next day after they've had their, their drinks. Because obviously, like I said, alcohol dehydrates you and people obviously wake up groggy and whatnot. But when they drink the blendy the next day and the day after, it brings them back quicker than than obviously regular water does so yeah mate we're we're out here working mate as well as playing ball and loving football same speed and we're making sure that we're standing alongside blendy and scoring goals mate well this has been fascinating i've loved every minute of this thank you so much for talking to us nathan it's, it's been a blast um hopefully we'll see you at hewish park at some point in the future it'll be i think a lot of fans of hold you in high regard, you know, 296 EFL appearances. Um, I think safe to say you are a legend of uh, Yeovil Town. And um, yeah, thank you for taking the time to talk to us this evening. Very much appreciate it. Thank you very much. You know, we must, maybe we should get to 300 appearances, who knows. Um, but listen, I've enjoyed this thoroughly. It's been a long, long day. I've been all around the world. I've been up to Northampton, back, Watford, everything and everything today. Frenzy Park. So I just got back in time for this podcast and it's been lovely. Great questions, great enthusiasm, good people. I've enjoyed it very much. You're a good man, Nathan. Thank you so much for your Thank time. Thank you. Nice one, lad. Yeah. And with a quick turn, skipper Alex Dock slams it in. There's Lindergaard making Forrest back pedal. Davis looking to help it into the path of Morris. He's found him via the deflection. It's Aaron Davis. He could win it. He probably has won it for Yeovil. Oh, and it's an opening goal. What a start. Madden, after just six minutes, gives Yeovil the lead. Stansfield, good turn away from Trott. Goal. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com. <laughs> 